It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornstein. Well, everybody, welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornstein. I'm the senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley right here in Colorado Springs. And I'm so excited that you are tuning in. We are continuing in our study of 1 Corinthians. Now, we haven't finished our study of chapter one yet. Uh, I told you this is going to take a little while because of so much rich content that's here in 1 Corinthians. In fact, this letter is written to the church. It's uh, really a guideline for how to worship Almighty God. The church had gotten off course a bit. In fact, as we go through this study, you'll see that there are many issues going on in the church that we might be able to even identify with here today. So despite the fact that it's almost been 2,000 years since this letter was written, it is still just as relevant today as it was then. And so it's a very convicting study and one that really should drive us into closer uh, proximity to Almighty God, an intimate walk with Him, to know Him and to abide with Him ultimately. So here we just wrapped up verse 24 last week. So let's just pick up where we left off there. If you could go back and reread this section, but we're going to try to pick up here in verse 25 today. But let me just finish the thought from last week. What we'll see here in this particular section is the fact that Paul is identifying with the Greeks and their quest for wisdom. In fact, this wisdom and folly cluster that he uses occurs 19 times in in this particular paragraph, and, and clearly wisdom, rather than signs, represents this characteristic of the, the preoccupation, if you will, of the Corinthian community. They seem to think that they might submit to God as soon as they can figure him out. I don't know if you have anybody that you might know who seems to think that way. They try to logically rationalize the awesomeness of Almighty God and, and, and try to ultimately bring him down to their level. They want God to fit into their minds before they let him fit into their lives. And the Greeks didn't practice crucifixion. They didn't have problems that the Jews did. And so this imagery seemed to be very difficult for them to understand what the cross was and what it represented. And, and they looked to philosophy then to answer the deepest problems of life, and they had no firm foundation of truth as a result. So the notion of a man hanging on a cross to save the world seemed like utter nonsense to them. To them, the, the cross was foolish. After all, the gods of Athens were mighty, revered, and predictable. They thought and acted like men. They exhibited a range of emotion, lusts, and passions like men. And despite the behavior of their gods, the Greeks, they emphasized wisdom. And, and we still study the writings of their philosophers today, quite frankly. And so the irony, of course, is that they worshiped the very images of the beings they created. They carved them out of their own hands and then they called themselves wise after so doing. And Isaiah 44, 9-20 calls this foolishness on display. But they saw no wisdom in the cross, and, and so they looked at the cross from a human point of view. And, and those who are called is the parallel to those who believe and us who are being saved. And part of being called is being able to hear God's call and being open to it. After all, it's God who draws us to the Lord Jesus. And it's worth noting that Paul did not alter his message when he turned from a Jewish audience to a Greek one. He preached Christ crucified and 
that he was resurrected. So let's pick up here in verse 25 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Here's what we read. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And don't you just love this verse? It seems like the ultimate trash talking, so to put them in their place. And some may interpret this as, as a statement that's suggesting that if, and that's a big if, if God, if it was possible for God to even be foolish or weak, his foolishness and weakness would still overwhelm us. However, the adjective moros is used in the Septuagint where the fool is skewered for being oblivious to self-destructive behavior. And so the, to the Koine Greek reader, they would have understood that the foolishness conveyed here is not depicted as ignorance, but rather is a demonstration of self-induced pain. So Paul is portraying God as being perceived as foolish to men because of his self-induced pain that is consciously intended to save others, thus portraying the semblance of weakness. His death on the cross was out of love for each of us, and love was both the strength and weakness of mighty warriors. So how does this message of the cross relate to our lives? We must seek to be in awe of what transpired there on the cross. You see, Christianity without the cross is like music without a tune. And Christ's cross make foolish all human wisdom. You see, the cross, it insults man's intelligence, it's man's ability, and, and even man's ambition. Yet the churches and individuals that God is going to do great things through are weak and foolish in the world's eyes, not in God's. Matthew eleven twenty five 25 tells us, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them to babes. What was demonstrated on the cross must be demonstrated by the followers of Christ. Listen to this in Matthew 16, 24 to 25. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You know, back in 1992, there was this film in the theaters called A River Runs Through It. The movie chronicles two brothers, sort of a coming of age in the early 20th century in Montana, and the boys grow up under the stern tutelage of their minister father. And this preacher teaches his sons about life, grace, and love, and, and through this art of fly fishing, this story unfolds. And, and But as the boys, as they mature and follow different paths, one a straight and narrow path and the other a wild one, they find that fishing is the one bond that draws them together as adults. And so a river runs through it was not a description of the land as much as it was a description of the reoccurring theme of their lives. And, and when all else failed... They could always go back to the river and, and the bond around their love of fly fishing. So in a very similar way, just like that movie, in a similar way for the Christian community and our experience together, we could call it a cross runs through it. When all else fails, when, when we always go back to the cross and that's our bond that, that brings us together, it's this love for one, for one another, and it ultimately a love for the one who died for us there. It's, it's ultimately a cross that runs through it. Often as the church, we can become divided over many issues. So we can be divided over the minor things 
and it can drive us apart. But ultimately, it should be a cross that runs through it, that unites us, that brings us together, that this love for the one who died for us there should unite us as the body of Christ. And ultimately, when we believe this, it's it's all wrapped up in the crucifixion, but not just the crucifixion, the resurrection of Christ, because he could have stayed on that cross. He could have died there and never resurrected, and ultimately our faith would be in vain. But rather, because he rose again, we have this bonding agent that a cross runs through it. It's a central truth of the Christian faith. It's the preeminent event of human history. It's a a badge of honor, if you will, the emblem of suffering and shame. That though the world despises the cross, we rally to it. It's the sign that we are more than conquerors. So therefore, I, I suspect that many of us who have forgotten to be in awe of this need to be reminded that the love of the cross, that, that we need to preach the cross, that we stand by the cross, that we're never ashamed of the cross, not because of the cross alone, but the cross alone, but but because of the one who took all that the cross could take and gave all that he could give. And he defeated it and he freed us. And by what took place on that cross some 2,000 years ago, followed by his resurrection, the cross has now become the symbol of power that can lift men and women out of their sins and release them from condemnation, giving them new life and setting their feet on a new path. So let's continue on here. I want to ask now the question, what sort of people does God look for when he gets ready to populate the new Jerusalem? You see, God's admission committee is different than any other, perhaps more so than any that we've ever considered. For God's thoughts are not like our thoughts, nor are his ways like our ways, according to Isaiah 55, 8. So what types of people does God choose for his family? And that's what we're going to look at here now in verses 26 to 31. I I would like to suggest that God chooses those who have nothing to brag about. Let's read here verse 26, 1 Corinthians. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. So Paul begins by taking the Corinthians back to their spiritual roots. He, He reminds them of who they were not when God saved them. You see, Paul commands the Corinthians to consider or contemplate their calling. The word calling here refers to their position in the world when they first believed in Christ. This issue of calling is pretty important to Paul. In fact, he's been talking about it all through chapter 1, verse 1, 2, 9, and 24. And he believes that in order to become a Christian, you must respond to God's call. Again, we read that in John chapter 6, verse 44. And since Paul will have some difficult things to say, he he addresses them as brethren. And you can go back to verse 10 on that. He then shares with his readers that they were not many, not many of them were wise according to the flesh. Not many of them were mighty. In fact, not many of them were even nobles. So first of all, the Corinthians were not comprised of this academically elite group of folks. They, they were not the wise as the world might use in their standard. They were, in, in fact, uh, there were some from the educated classes in Corinth, but most of them in the church were uneducated. And, and secondly, the Corinthians were not political movers or shakers, and that's where he gets his word mighty, not just in their strength of their flesh, but rather mighty in their position or class, ruling class within society. And finally, the Corinthians were not 
from these well-to-do families, as you call them, nobles. Uh, most of them were from lower ranks of society, in fact, including the slave class, which we'll discuss more in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and 11. So uh, what Paul's saying to these Corinthian Christians is, you know what sort of people you were when God called you out of sinful darkness and into the light of salvation. You know, and he didn't accept you as his child because you were brilliant or wealthy or powerful because most of you weren't any of those things. And those of you who were defined by those things, in spite of that, he still called you. So it wasn't because of your position or because of your wealth or stature that God called you. Rather, in spite of those things, he still called you. Because, in fact, most of those things can be uh, stumbling blocks to embracing what the cross represents. As it was seemed foolish to the eyes of the world, he wants them almost in mindsets like babes, hungry for truth, willing to accept the wisdom of God in full display before them. So the reality is that the position and wealth and influence really can be a hindrance, keeping people from this sense of need, that they don't even need salvation. We can go back to Matthew 19, 24 and Mark 10 to 25 on that. So in a sense, Paul is uh, holding up a mirror and say, take a good look. Do you see? And what they saw were ordinary men and women from unimpressive backgrounds whose lives have been utterly transformed by Jesus Christ. Many of us can relate to that, and God seems to prefer the individuals the world deems as losers. When God calls people to his family, he intentionally chooses those whom the world rejects, and he seems to prefer the weak over the strong, the forgotten over the famous, and the nobodies over the somebodies. And this goes right back to Matthew chapter 20, verse 16. He says, so that the last will be first, and the first last, for many are called, but few are chosen. He starts with the people the world chooses last. I love how he seems to pull this out throughout Scripture. If we look at King David, who wasn't even king at the time, simply bringing food to his brothers there at the front line when Israel was battling the Philistines, and young David can't even fit the armor, God chooses him to go against the impressive warrior of Satan, Goliath. We see this throughout Scripture. Daniel versus the lions. We see Shadrach. Meshach and Abednego versus the mighty furnace. It always seems like invincible, impenetrable. The the mighty that God seems to bring down with these whom the world looks down upon. And here we read in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most most gladly, I will rather boast in my affirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You see, Jesus deliberately elevated those forgotten in the world, and he sought out the company of the poor. He loves to save the uneducated, the foolish, the addicted, the broken, the downcast, and even the imprisoned. In short, he, he seems to specialize in saving those whom the world counts as nothing. If we think of ourselves as something without Christ, then we are really nothing. If God chooses the down-and-outers, is there any place for the famous, the wealthy, or even the brilliant? And the answer, of course, is yes. Erasmus was a member of the church and held an influential position as the treasurer of the city, as we're told in Romans chapter 16, verse 23. So notice carefully that 
1 Corinthians 1.26 does not say that not any of you were wise, not any of you were influential, or not any of you were of noble birth, but, but rather not many. The word many over any makes quite a difference here. So thank God for those who have been chosen to use their resources, their influence, or their intellect for the glory of God. There are many even in churches who have the ability to give in abundance, and we praise God for them. It doesn't mean that they're elevated more than another. It's like the widow's might. You give what you can give. What God has given to you, you put to work for his kingdom and let him expand if he so chooses to do so. But this is often a test of our heart. Is our God the ruler of the universe or not? He could take anything that we can give and he can spread it mightily, just like he did with those loaves of bread and fish. He can do more than we could ever imagine. He often likes to break us out of what we think is possible to demonstrate the impossible. You know, in the 11th century, King Henry III of Bavaria grew tired of court life and the pressures of being a monarch. He made application to Prior Richard. I'm not talking about Richard Prior. I'm talking about Prior Richard at the local monastery. He is asking to be accepted as a contemplative and and spend the rest of his life in the monastery. And and to which he receives this reply from Prior Richard. He says, Your Majesty, do you understand that the pledge here is one of obedience, that you will be hard, that, that this will be hard because you have been a king and accustomed to plenty. To which King Henry responds, I understand. The rest of my life I will be obedient to you as Christ leads you. Then I will tell you what to do, says Prior Richard. Go back to your throne and serve faithfully in the place where God has put you. When King Henry died, a statement was written, the king learned to rule by being obedient. See, God chooses those who have nothing to brag about. And, and Paul has reminded the Corinthians of who they were not, but now Paul goes on to inform them of who they were. In, in verses 27 and 29, we read, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Three times in verses 27 to 28, Paul writes that God has chosen. This is the doctrine of sovereign choice, the biblical doctrine of election. There are no naturally born children of God. All are adopted. They are children by choice, not by accident. Again, this is a point further highlighted in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 to 30. We can read, for whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. You, You know, you consider the implication of this text. When the world throws a party, what happens? Well, we see this on television. In fact, it's the beautiful people who are always invited. They rent this nightclub, hire a security team, and keep all the ordinary people out. 
and only the in crowd seems to make it past the rope. There's helicopters circling overhead. The paparazzi are straining to get their picture that they can sell to People magazine. It's all about who shows up and who's wearing what kind of outfit and trying to match this man with this woman. That's how the world seems to throw a party, but God does it differently. Listen to this, Matthew 25, 31 to verse 40, we read, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory, and all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And He will set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats to His left." And then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. And I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. So God often chooses people that no one would invite to a party. He he includes those who would normally be excluded. He, He does this intentionally. He brings to nothing the things that are impressive in our world, and God chooses the despised so that no man or woman can boast before him, look what I have done. He wants those of humble, contrite spirit who come into his presence with gratitude. Look what you have done. Anything good that has come out of me is because of you. God will not share his glory with anyone, according to Isaiah 42, verse 8. You see, there's this organization called Mensa, whose members have an IQ of 140 or higher. And a few years ago, there was a Mensa convention in San Francisco, and several members, uh, they they were lunching at a a local cafe. And, And while dining, they discovered that their salt shaker contained pepper, and their pepper shaker was full of salt. So how could they swap the contents of the bottles without spilling and using only the implements at hand? Well, clearly, this was a job for Mensa. And so the group debated and presented the ideas and finally came up with this brilliant solution involving a napkin, a straw, and an empty saucer. They they called the waitress over to dazzle her with their solution. Ma'am, they said, we couldn't help but notice that the pepper shaker contains salt and the salt shaker contains paper pepper. And so uh, the waitress is, is uh, dumbfounded by this. She looks at them and she's like, oh, well, I'm sorry about that. So she unscrews the caps of the bottles and switches them. <laughs> now, this is how God works, it seems. God uses uh, the, the, the foolish to shame the wise. He, he likes to bring down those who are wise in their own eyes. God used trumpets to bring down the walls of Jericho. He reduced Gideon's army from 32,000 to 300 to rout the armies of Midian. He used an ox goat in the hand of Shamgar to defeat the Philistines. He used a jawbone of a donkey 
and he enabled Samson to defeat a whole army with it, and Jesus fed fed over 5,000 with nothing more than a few loaves and fish. God does these types of miracles to humble mankind so that no one can take credit for it. Augustine, when asked what the three most important, important virtues were, he replied, humility, humility, humility. Now, we've been studying about that here at Church at Calvary Fellowship, Fountain Valley. I want to encourage you to come and study more about that if you, if you get a chance. Uh, we have a Calvary Academy there at Calvary Fellowship, Fountain Valley. Love for you to study with us. But truly, this is God's heart for you and me. He, he wants us to daily recognize that we have nothing to brag about before him. You go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30 to 31, we read, But of him... You are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. It is by his doing, literally of him, that you're even in Christ Jesus at all. Those of you who call yourselves believers as you're listening to this, he is both the source and the cause of anyone being in Christ, even, yes, those Corinthian Christians. And the believer is described here very simply as the one who is in Christ. You can't be any closer than something than if you were in it. Let's read Romans 8.10. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. He says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with, with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. In the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I hope this has been encouraging to you. We have so much more yet to cover to get us through verse 31 here of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I hope you've been blessed. Please go back and re-listen to these broadcasts at calvaryfountain.com. If you are looking for a fellowship to go deeper in the Word of God with, then come check us out at Calvary Fellowship. Fountain Valley. We're on the south end of town, a plant at Calvary Worship Center, and we are in keeping with other Calvary chapels, a verse-by-verse expository church. You can learn more at calvaryfountain.com. Services are at 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. on Sundays. We'd love to see you there. God bless you, my friend.